morning, I'm preaching on Revelation, or teaching, whichever one you prefer, on Revelation, the first chapter. Now, we talked about the first chapter of the Revelation last week. Well, this is part two, okay? Two weeks ago, uh, we laid the foundation for understanding, and therefore no longer avoiding the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. As you all know, the book of the Revelation is probably one of the most misunderstood books in the Bible, if not the the holder of the trophy of most misunderstood, and therefore most avoided by the laity. So with that said, last week we laid a foundation to try to demystify in an attempt to begin demystifying the book of the Revelation, laid foundation. With that foundation, number one, I'm going to recap this morning, that foundation that that we laid last week. But if you want to hear the entire message in its entirety, go to cwccorsicana.org and go to the podcast and listen to it. Or you can go to YouTube, dial up CWC Corsicana, and you'll come up with the message, okay? And a whole bunch of other messages. But let's recap about what the foundation was made up of. The first component of the foundation that we laid last week for understanding is that we know that God wants His servants to know, quote, what must shortly come to pass. God wants us to know that. He wants us to know these things. He said so in chapter 1 of the Revelation, verse 1. This is what that says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. God wants us to know that. He wants us to know his plan for the end of the ages. That is his intent for the book, the whole book. Chapters 1 through 22, that we know his plan for the future. Ultimately, this book was never, now listen to me very carefully, this book was never intended to be taught to you by someone more qualified to do so. Some specialist whose job it is to explain the revelation to you. No, that's not God's intention. God's desire is that you read it. That you understand it for yourself. How many of you have an inherent fear and therefore avoidance of the Gospel of John? Nobody. How about Let's, let's get a hard one. How about the epistle of Galatians? Ooh. Anybody have an inherent of, I cannot read that book? Is I just can't understand it. Anybody? Nobody. If I was to ask the same question of the Revelation, I'd get hands, who would admit it, all over the room. In any room full of believers that I would go to anywhere in the world. But the reality is that God said in chapter 1, verse 1, that uh, God gave Christ the revelation so that he could show his servants what must soon take place. 
God wants you to know it, not by me telling you, but by you reading it and interacting with the Spirit of God and His Holy Writ. The bottom line is, is that this is not the Dark Ages. This isn't the Holy Roman Empire. The reading of God's Word is not relegated to a select few who know how to read Latin. And you are not peasants without any way to read the Bible on your own. That was an actual period of time, by the way. That actually all happened. God wants you to read, He wants you to understand, and He wants you to keep this revelation. What must shortly come to pass must be really important to us, and it must be really important for us. Because knowing what must shortly come to pass has a blessing attached to it. That blessing isn't financial prosperity, nor is it fame, nor is it the amassing of wealth or material things like so many Christians attribute the idea of blessing to. None of the ble- the blessing that comes with the revelation isn't anything even remotely like that. Not even remotely. Unless, of course, you get to the point where you're so good with it, you write a book and sell it. Wow, that didn't go well. The blessing consists of and is contained in the knowledge that is in the revelation itself. In other words, knowing what is in this book is the blessing. It's the blessing, listen now, of being aware of God's will. There's your blessing. Now, the blessing of knowing what must shortly come to pass is also, one, in the relationship between you and Him as an individual child of God. And two, in the promise of God to fulfill what He has promised to His people. Now, those concepts right there, one and two, are exemplified in Genesis 18 and Isaiah chapter 41. Listen to Genesis 18. You'll all remember what this story is when I get into it. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him. We have him chosen in the house. So that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Now listen to this. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Now let's jump over to the 41st chapter of Isaiah. Check it out. It's right up here. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of what? Abraham, my friend. What am I trying to say here? How many of you have ever sang the song, 
I am a friend of God. Okay. God seeks to inform you of His will. His will is accompanied by the blessing of being aware of what that will is. And the reason He does that is because He has made great and precious promises to His children that He not only has revealed, but is going to fulfill. Why? Because we walk hand in hand as the friends of God. He will fulfill it. Therein lies the blessing. We see from these verses in Genesis 18 and Isaiah 41 that not only does God want us to know His plans He has revealed, but that He, in fact, does reveal them. It's not like He's sitting around wringing His hands saying, Boy, I sure wish I could reveal my plans to those people, but they won't read my book. He's laid it out there and He says, Read it, understand it, and keep it. That's what He says. And that by revealing them, He includes us in His plan. Guys, whether you like it or not, if you avoid the revelation, you are really not seeing the plan of God and your participation in it. He wants you to know what He's doing. All right, that's the first, that's the first component of understanding. The second component of understanding is how you arrive at the blessing. It's that He wants us to read it. He wants us to hear it. He wants us to take it to heart. What is in the book? And thereby be blessed by the book. That's how you arrive at it. Hear it, read it, and keep it. Take it to heart. That's how you get the blessing. He wants you to have the blessing. Now you've got to do something to acquire it. Read it, hear it, and take it to yourself. Take it to heart. If you want more on that, go to the podcast. And hear the word study from last week. The third component for understanding is that he intentionally laid the book of the Revelation out in a simple three-division format according to chapter 1, verse 19, making it super easy to understand the format and how it's divided up. This is what he says, Revelation 1 and 19. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. That's your three divisions. That's how the book is laid out. The first division is chapter 1. What you have seen. The second division is chapters 2 and 3. What is now. And then the final third division is chapters 4 to the end of the book. Verse chapter 22. What will take place later. There's your divisions. Voila. Foundation laid. Now that we understand the foundation, did a quick recap. Let's move on into chapter 1. And let's see what it's all about, shall we? There are three things. Three things that you need to know in order to be aware. Uh, in order to be, that you need to be aware of in order to understand Revelation chapter 1. Three. Three. Everybody say three. Three. First thing. The first thing you need to be aware of in order to understand Revelation chapter 1 is found in verses 1 and 2. Let's read verses 1 and 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. 
he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. I need to alert you to a subtle point right here, right now. Get ready for this. Remember this point through the rest of the lesson this morning. The words seen, see, and saw are the keys to understanding chapter 1. The words seen, see, and saw. Chapter 1 is not a series of, of teachable points and factoids that you break down and teach. No. This chapter is laid out on purpose. And the thing that you need to be aware of in order to understand the entire context of chapter 1 are the words seen, see, and saw. The bulk of chapter 1 is bound up in these words. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, are the first indicator concerning chapter 1, the first division of the book. They're it. John testified as to what he saw. Everything has to do with what John saw. Now, he saw more than just chapter 1, obviously. He saw everything from chapters 1 through the end of chapter 22. And then he subsequently testified about it. But... We're not focusing on 1 through 22. Today we're focusing on chapter 1. How did he testify about what he saw? Jesus said in verse 11, Write on a scroll what you see. And send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Write on a scroll what you see. He testified about what he saw by writing it down. Now we're going to get somewhere here. Hang on. Documenting everything that he could so that when he, John, when he delivered the individual messages to each of the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, they the churches would know exactly who it was that was speaking to them. And it wasn't John. Everything that he saw, according to verse 11, he was instructed to write down. According to verse 1, he was to testify about all of that. When he testified to each individual church, church in 2 and 3, they knew precisely who was speaking to him, to them. And it wasn't John. So, whatever John saw, he wrote down. However, for the purposes of understanding chapter 1, we need to know what it was that he saw in chapter 1. That makes sense, right? If we're going to understand it, we need to know what he saw. Remember, 
the bulk of chapter 1 is bound up in the words seen, see, and saw. Remember that. When you boil it all down, chapter 1 consists of this. This one reality. John seeing the glorified Christ. That is what John saw. The vision, that vision of the glorified Christ that John sees, that vision sets the stage for quite literally the rest of the entire book. How many of you have ever read the Revelation and thought, why is that there? Why is it in chapter 1? We're about to find out. Because literally, when John turns around after hearing the voice, that vision sets the stage for chapters 2 through 22. So the vision is what he saw and what he testified about. The second thing you need to be aware of in chapter 1 of the Revelation is found in verses 4 and 5. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now listen to this. Grace and peace to you. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. But it doesn't end there. From him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth right here verses 4 and 5 this is a really important point to make with respect to understanding chapter 1 and God himself. Notice that these verses are specifically addressed to the seven churches in the province of Asia. That's important for the simple reason that most all of the seven churches are often, often painted in a negative light when spoken of. Why? Because Jesus pointed them out in a negative light. They're oftentimes spoken of in a negative light. Yet verses 4 and the first part of verse 5 make it a point to clearly state that the Trinity, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, all send both grace and peace to these congregations despite their condition. Now, guys, if you were to just sit there right now, do nothing for the rest of the day but chew on that sentence, you would see your God in a whole new light. This is God's intent from the start of the revelation, to begin by greeting these churches, churches who also represent the church throughout the entire church age. The entire church age being from the day of Pentecost until this moment 
right now and beyond until he comes, he extends to these churches grace and peace. Let me tell you something. This should encourage you. If you are a born-again Christian and you have participated in the grace of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, then ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, you are experiencing the position of being in peace with God. And these are the gifts that the Trinity themselves extend to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Although the negativity that often accompanies the seven churches is (laughs) well-earned, all you have to do is read it, well-earned, God, Elohim, the Trinity, still begins by expressing His love to all of them by greeting them with grace and peace. This love for His church didn't stop at the seven. It continues on to this day, despite the flaws found in the modern church today. Grace and peace. You know a troubled church? You know of a troubled church somewhere? You know what God says from the beginning? Grace and peace to them. Now I'm going to stop and do a little sidebar. In the event that someone is confused by my statements regarding the Trinity, specifically concerning the presence of the Holy Spirit in verse 4, which says, And from the seven spirits before His throne. If you're concerned about that when you read that, and you think I just decided to throw in the Holy Spirit in place of the seven spirits, plural, don't be alarmed. This mention is not separate. It's not seven separate distinct spirits. When, he, when the Bible says here, the sevenfold spirit, the seven spirits before his throne, we're not talking about seven separate distinct spirits at all, but rather one spirit in his sevenfold activity. Okay, Michael, that sounds lovely. Give me Bible. Why, I thank you for asking. Isaiah chapter 11. It's going to be right here. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of might. The Spirit of the, of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. That is the sevenfold Spirit that's before the throne as we speak. The Spirit of the Lord, one. The spirit of wisdom, two, and of understanding, three. The spirit of counsel, four, and of might, five. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, seven. That is a sevenfold activity of the Holy Spirit. Okay? He is the spirit of the Lord. He is the spirit of wisdom and of understanding. He is the spirit of counsel. And he is the spirit of might. He is the spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. Sevenfold. So don't get alarmed. Scripture bears witness to it, okay? We okay? Good. Now, that's the second thing. Here's the third thing that you need to be aware of 
is found in verses 12 through 20 with verses 9 through 11 as our setup. I realize this is a lot of scripture to read. I'm going to read it, though, because I think it's important to grasp this. Beginning in verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom uh, uh, and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he was kind of exiled there because he was preaching. On the Spirit, or on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me of a loud voice, like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see. The whole chapter is bound up in those words. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then... He placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. 19. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is, without question, the vision of the glorified Christ that John saw. What were his instructions With respect to verse 11, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. What is it that happens here? What is it he's seeing? What are his instructions? Write what you see and send it to the seven. This is very important. Write what you see. And send it to the seven. No sooner did John receive these instructions in verse 11 than verses 12 through 20 happen. Just like this. John hears these instructions right on a scroll. And this voice is blasting like a trumpet. He spins around to see who is saying this. And chapter uh, verse 12 happens. Wham! The unfolding 
of who Jesus truly is. He sees the glorified, deified Christ in his original state. And how does he react? Heart stop, respiratory stop, face down, dead as a mackerel. Why is that important? So what? We read in the Bible all this stuff in chapter 1, and all of a sudden, John receives the instructions. Write it down on a scroll. Everything you see, send it to the seven. He turns around and sees this beautiful visage, this imagery that's beyond his comprehension, or any of ours, and we read it like we're reading the newspaper without seeing the reason this is important. Why is it important? And why was he instructed to send what he saw directly to the seven churches and ultimately to the church throughout history, meaning us? Why is that important? Because some of the things that Jesus said to the seven churches and ultimately to us are kind of difficult to receive. And then there are other things that Jesus said to the seven which are comforting and reassuring. And in order for all those things to be accepted, to be acceptable, they would have to be accompanied by and preceded by the knowledge that John wasn't the one saying these things. John wasn't the one saying them to the seven churches and ultimately to the church throughout all of history. The resurrected, glorified Christ in all of His glory and all of His power was the one saying them. That is important. Not only that, but everything that would follow what must shortly come to pass, chapters 4 and beyond, is oftentimes so utterly fantastic, it breaches the imagination and would be difficult, could be difficult to believe if it were not, if it were just being said by John. Is everybody getting this? But by having told the seven churches in advance who it was that was saying that these things were going to happen gave John's testimony that he had written down credibility, validity, and weight. Why? Because it wasn't John at all. It was the risen, glorified, all-powerful God who said it. Therefore, it could be believed. That is why the vision of the glorified Christ in chapter 1 laying the groundwork is lay, lays the groundwork for everything else that is going to be said in the rest of the book. You have to understand... Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Jay, I didn't prepare you for this. This is off the cuff. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his 
servants. What must soon take place? Brothers and sisters, this isn't going to the lost. This book was never intended for the lost. This book was intended for the blood-bought so that they could take the message of the gospel to the lost. This is what God says to my servants. This is what is happening now. And this is what's going to happen later. So John, make sure and tell them everything that you see. Oh, and don't forget, write it down. Not because this is for lost people. It is not. If they think Jesus is weird, how do you think they'd think about the revelation? If they think the gospel Jesus is weird and unacceptable, just for telling them that they need to be saved and that redemption is here, if they think that's unacceptable, how unacceptable would the revelation of Jesus Christ be? This is why the bulk of chapter 1 is bound up in the words see, seen, see, and saw. John had to see it so he could testify it about it so that the servants could understand it and subsequently accept it. That's what's it all about. The three things to be aware of in chapter 1 is see, seen, saw. The vision sets the stage. The, other, the next thing is grace and peace to the seven from God. That is God's heart. He doesn't take the trouble to go and send His Son to die on a cross just to say, oh, that church is doing something wrong. To hell with them. Punt. We are people. We are lost without the blood. Even with the blood. John says, don't sin. But if you do, you have an advocate with the Father. That's the point of extending grace and peace to the seven in advance. Despite their condition. That's why this church and all contemporary modern churches and those that will follow have God's grace and peace despite their condition because that is God's wish for the church. If God didn't want that, what kind of business is He in saving lost people? Talk about bad conditions. Every one of us knows some folk that are in some bad conditions. And yet the shed blood of Jesus is out there in an ever-flowing fountain for the lost to come and be redeemed through Jesus Christ. Perpetually unending. That's the business God's in. And finally, the vision of the resurrected Christ gives credibility and weight to what John saw and testified about. Without it, the revelation would be an unacceptable document. What's John babbling on about this weird nonsense red dragons in the sky trying to eat some lady's baby who's closed in the sun? What is up with that? Well, if it was John, yeah, I can see where that would be a problem. But since it's divinity itself saying it, suddenly it becomes far more acceptable. 
with that said, those are the three things that you need to be aware of. Michael, you didn't cover X, Y, and Z in chapter 1. You know what? You're right. You know why? Because for this study, they don't matter. If you want to know all the nuances and the subtleties of the revelation, go find yourself, one, the good book. And you read it. And you let it and the Spirit of God speak to you. Beware you interpret it under your own guise or some tradition that's not founded here. Beware. The second thing you do is go out and find another good book. Joseph Seiss, S-E-I-S-S, I believe is how it's spelled. Commentarian. The Apocalypse. Buy it. Now this is one of those things where if you want nuance... Oh, you'll get nuance. He'll be speaking in English in, in, a, in a sentence and drop Greek right in the middle of it and then move on. But it's not such that you can't understand it. He's incredible. Buy that book. Read it with that book, and you will gain understanding. Amen? Stand with me this morning. The last thing... is Revelation, the second verse of chapter 1. Look at this. We're talking about John here. John, who testifies to everything he saw. Now watch how the Word of God qualifies and classifies everything that John saw. It says, that is, comma, the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So everything that John saw from chapter 1 through chapter 22 is the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's the weight the revelation of Jesus Christ carries. Remember, He wants you to know it. He wants you to read it. He wants you to hear it, and He wants you to take it unto yourself. When you do that, there's the blessing of being aware of the will of God waiting for you. Father, we worship You. We praise You. We glorify the name of the Lord God Most High. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to the name of the Lord. Father, we just ask that You administer now. Father, I ask that you would minister to the hearers today. Father, I've been the one doing the reading. They've been the ones doing the hearing. Father, I pray that they will take it to heart. Keep their eye on it and guard it as your words say. Father, I ask all this in Jesus' name because, Lord, this is your will that we read, hear, and take it to heart, understand it. Father, I ask in Jesus' name for all of the prayer requests that have been lifted up today. Father, I ask that you would minister to my wife. Father, I ask that you would minister to the Padillas. Father, I ask that you minister to Linda Chapman and her, and her girls.
Father, I ask that you minister to a myriad of prayer requests across this place and across the spectrum of needs. Father, I just pray that you would bless today with your presence. No matter how you choose to intervene and interact in our prayer requests, help us, Lord, to feel and sense your presence no matter how you decide to interact. And Father, build us up in the most holy faith through your presence. We pray this all in Jesus' name. I'm just going to take a moment right now. It's 12 o'clock noon. And just ask, is there anyone here today that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Is there anybody here today that does not know Jesus? And you want to. That's why you came to church. Because the Holy Spirit's moving on you and convicting you of a life lived in sin that maybe you periodically acknowledge God, acknowledge Jesus. But you're not His. You have not accepted Him as Lord and Savior of your life. You know, that's important stuff when we're talking eternity. And so I'm just wondering, is there anybody here who does not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You know, the only reason He came to earth, He descended from the heavens, from his throne and his glorified state that we read about in Revelation chapter 1 this morning. The only reason he descended to the, to the surface of this planet was that so he could extend to us the opportunity to live forever with him through accepting him and asking for forgiveness of sin and accepting his shed blood as the sacrifice that God will accept and only that gift will he accept that's the only reason he even came that's the only reason there is a Christian religion is because God came down in flesh for the express purpose of manifesting God's love not our love, God's love toward us to save us that's it, there isn't any more that's, that's as deep as that theology goes anybody today want to come to know Jesus Christ? Anyone at all feeling the unction? All right. Father, we love you. I just ask that you would take this congregation, take them into their lives and into this world, their sphere of influence. And Father, let them understand your grace and your blessing and your peace. Bless them this week until we gather back again on Wednesday and then back on Sunday. Lord, I ask all this in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen and amen, and you are dismissed.